If you uh, happened to miss last week, um, that's your loss. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Um, and it is. Um, I, I encourage you to go to the website and listen to the message because there was a, a call to make a constant commitment to the increase of Christ in our lives. And um, you were challenged, and many of you came forward, and, and that was exciting. And if you weren't here, and as you consider your life, if you would like to commit to the spot, changing the spotlight of your life, that it would be on Christ in all things. And if you'd like to call upon God to bring into your life that which would cause that spotlight to go to him, that's a commitment we're calling you to make. And by way of reminder, we handed these out, and if that's a commitment you'd like to make, or maybe you've been thinking all week, and before God, you're like, okay, I'm ready, then, then grab one of these. They're out in a, the lobby there on the a little welcome center, and uh, we call everyone to that commitment. It's kind of exciting to run into somebody, actually, at the Target Center of all places, and, uh, and, and there I saw they were wearing their reminder, and that, was, that blessed me. And uh, so hopefully that's a commitment you make. And again, those bands are in the basket out there. Is that something you should make or you broke yours or whatever it would be? So um, this morning, uh, we, we really need um, to open in prayer, and so let's do that. Father, uh, as we just sang, um, from the inside out is where you do your work. It's what we pray would happen in these moments. Holy Spirit, search us and know us. See if there be any wicked way in us. Teach us. Guide us. Give us understanding. For the sake of your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, um, got to be honest, uh, this is a tough passage. Uh, I have no delight in preaching what I'm going to preach, just so you know. And if anyone did, something's wrong with them. This is an ugly passage. I don't know other, any other way to describe it. It's ugly, and as parents, it's R-rated. And so I really exhort you to talk with your children about this later. Might need to explain some things if they're younger. Um, but this is an ugly passage. There's no way around it. I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist, and I found nothing in here that I could tap into um, other than this is just ugly. Because sin is ugly, and unfortunately, this is a vivid portrayal of it. If we were to consider some things that we run across regularly in life, and we find that there's microorganisms, there's nitrates, there's arsenic, and if those things are present, they can contaminate water. We know that animal drugs, hormone residue, packaging materials can all contaminate food. There's things that contaminate. And con contamination, the word, it means to soil or to stain or corrupt or infect by contact or association. And the account of Lot's life here is really an account of one being contaminated. On the night of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we find in Scripture a vivid example of the tragic consequences of moral compromise, of interacting with that which contaminates. And these disturbing events in Sodom the twilight of Genesis 19 remind us that you and I cannot stay healthy, might not even stay afloat if we swim in the sewer. And that's what this text is about. Now, this isn't the first, the only time that we read that God had to warn people of this. 
In Joshua 23, 11 through 13, the leader Joshua addressed his fellow Hebrews. They'd fought their way into the land of Canaan, and with the wilderness wanderings behind them and the promised land ahead, he warned them. And I read from Joshua 23, 11 through 13. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of those nations, these which remain among you and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap to you, and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from all this good land which the Lord your God has given you. In 1 Kings 11, we see King Solomon. He had acquired everything a person could ever want in their life. Yet for all his wisdom, he chose to fill his palace with women from rival nations. 700 wives, 300 concubines, if you can believe it. And Solomon became relationally contaminated by the adulterous women he'd brought into his life, and that influence led him away from God. We're warned in Proverbs multiple times. In Proverbs 20, verse 19, we're told not to associate with a gossip because it'll pull us away it'll pull us into that behavior proverbs 22 24 through 25 says don't be a friend with angry people or go with a hot-tempered man why or you'll learn his ways you'll find a snare for yourself it's a warning a warning of association of aligning your life with negative influences around there's New Testament warnings, 1 Corinthians 5. New Testament teaches us much of the same thing. Paul's admonishment to the Christians in Corinth, by the way, whose city lay in the shadow of the most notorious fertility temple in the Roman Empire, known for its official prostitutes, they needed a warning. Here's what Paul says to them, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, 11, 9, 11 verse, verse 11. I write you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for they would have to go out into the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You see, we can't avoid casual associations with evil and immoral people. Nor should we. I mean, how do we be kind and loving to people like that? But when we cultivate close friendships with people who continually engage in immoral behavior, it's dangerous to our spiritual health. Indeed, it's a pull towards the sewer. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul's not done speaking to this church. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16. Listen to what he says. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has a temple of God with idols. For we are the temple of the living God just as God has said. Again, it does not mean believers should avoid contact with people of other religions or other philosophies. It's not saying that. In fact, the Bible does encourage 
association with others as a means of demonstrating the love of God to them. However, if we maintain evil lifestyle, others we hang around closely with, it's only a matter of time until we're pulled towards that immorality and evil. Because immorality is poisonous. You can never be immune to its deadly potency. It's like sewage. It contaminates. Which brings us to Lot in Genesis 19. It's interesting as I contrast Abraham and Lot in chapter 18, we've studied Abraham's life and, and, and we, we kind of, the end of chapter 18, we see Abraham pleading for the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. God had let him in on what was going to happen. And Abraham pleaded for them. And he was hoping there were some righteous people here. And I think as Abraham pleaded more and more, I think the reality set in that there just weren't a lot in this city, and he was right. We read in chapter 18 about Abraham and these heavenly visitors. In chapter 19, we read about Lot and some heavenly visitors. In chapter 18, we see a faithful follower in Abraham. Chapter 19, we don't see that at all. We we see one who is ensnared. In chapter 18, 1, we find Abraham in the oaks of Mamre, separated from the contamination. In Lot, we find him in Sodom, a type of world. Matter of fact, we still use the word sodomy. In chapter 18, verse 1, we have both angels and the Lord who stood before Abraham. Chapter 19, we have two angels, the same, two of the angels who made their way down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 18, verse 2, we find Abraham in the door of the tent. In chapter 19, we find Lot in the gate to Sodom. And so we have a real contrast in locations and type of persons we're talking about. Lot really is an epitome of Psalm 1. One who walked, stood, and sat in the way of sinners. We see that unfortunately. And actually, early readers would have read this, and when they read about Lot being in the gate to the city, they would have raised their eyebrows and went, what's he doing there? (laughs) He doesn't belong there. And they were right. And so let's follow this along a little bit because we have an example of sewer swimming. In Sodom and Gomorrah, these are twin cities. They control this lush, fertile valley. Two population centers. They were an economic hub. Uh, There was a lot of money there, and it was a prosperous place to be. But immorality had become so notorious in these two cities that even pagan people who were from outside Sodom and Gomorrah looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and went, whoa, those are some wicked people. And when you have wicked people calling wicked people wicked people, they're really wicked people. And that's really what was this, these two cities were. And that's why we read the account here. And so what do we read about Lot in this wicked cities? Chapter 19, verse 1 through 2. Now the two angels came to Sodom. And if you back up to chapter 18, 22, we read about these two angels. They came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed down with his face to the ground, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. And so we have Lot in this wicked city. And earlier when God had stopped to dialogue with Abraham, his two accompanying angels, they had continued down the foothills toward the cities. And so the question on the table, one of them I have, is why did Lot align himself so closely with this evil city? 
Remember, Abraham gave him a choice. You pick whatever you want. He chose Sodom and Gomorrah in that area. But why did he line himself so closely? I don't know, maybe in his mind he thought, well, maybe if I go I can have a positive influence and maybe turn people to Abraham's God. We, we don't exactly know other than he wasn't focused on what God wanted. He was focused on what Lot wanted. And then he began to slowly become associated with the people who surrounded him. We read in verse 2, these two angels approach. Now, they didn't have wings. They didn't have a halo. They looked like ordinary travelers. And they're looking for a place to stay, like travelers would. And maybe Lot thought they must not be from around here. Why would they have come here to want to stay? Because we see something, first of all, Lot saw in them that warranted a deep reverence because he calls them lords, which it would be kind of the equivalent of calling somebody sir here today. It was a sign of respect, and so there was something in these visitors that, that warranted him to, to speak with a, a reverence, a, a respect. And he offered hospitality to these traveling strangers, and, and back to that culture, that was considered a duty, actually, a privilege in Lot's culture. But let's read verse 3. Let's follow this story along. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Okay, so they're coming their way. Lot says, hey, would you come inside? And they said, no, no, we'll, we'll just sleep in the public square. And, and then Lot says, no, please, come inside. He urged them strongly, is what the words say. Lot knew what would happen to those visitors. He feared for them. In providing hospitality, the host accepts responsibility for the safety of his guests. But I have a question. How would he know they'd be in danger? I wonder if he'd seen other helpless victims. I mean, how would he know? He knew that this were, these were wicked people. He knew if they stayed in that square, they were in trouble. And so Lot knows the wickedness around him and probably had seen unfortunately, other victims. Now, Scripture never names one particular kind of sin here as the reason for God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But Sodom and Gomorrah had completely given themselves over to immorality of every kind and to such extremes that God made an example of them. While Sodom has become associated with homosexual acts, and the story best known because it contains homosexual lust, these sins weren't the only ones that made Sodom and Gomorrah invite God's punishment on them. Let's read verse 4 through 11 and see what else we find here. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind them. He said, please, my brothers, don't act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, 
both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters, with whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out, spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Oofta. So we see Lot among these immoral citizens. They should have extended hospitality. Their failure to do so was a sin in itself. And they should have not engaged in homosexual acts. This was sin upon sin. And they should not have raped. That was sin layered upon sin as they tried to. And we must shudder to think this was merely a single representative sample of Sodom's evil. At any rate, Lot feared for the men's safety, and he convinced them to stay. And now all of a sudden, there's men at the door who want them. Now, to address this text, it's important to understand uh, some attacks on it by revisionists. There are some revisionists who put forth that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is one just of inhospitality. That, that, it is, that homosexuality in this case isn't wrong because that really wasn't the issue. It was one of inhospitality. Well, that sounds good if you want to be nice, but Jude 7 doesn't give us that option. Jude 7, last book before Revelation, says this. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in way... This, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In other words, it's not hard to miss that Sodom and Gomorrah was marked by sexual sin. There's no way around it. Uh, Jude 7 makes that clear, as we would find other passages as well that, that make that clear as well. And so... That argue, argument by revisionists is shot down. But I want you to notice some things in verse 4. The sin had contaminated the entire city. Notice, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter. The Hebrew implies this idea without exception, from every end of the city. You see, when you have mom and dad who are modeling immoral behavior. Unfortunately, children see the model and often follow it, unfortunately. And so you have people from every corner. This is scary. I mean, this marks the city. It's young and old alike. They're at this door all wanting the same thing. And this sin had contaminated the entire city. And the description of who was involved drives home the point that everyone shared the guilt. Now, as we read verse 5, they called to Lot, young and old alike, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. So obviously, somebody saw them. They probably went and spread the word, hey, there's guests in town. Lot grabbed them and brought them into his house. And so word spread, and here these people come. Verse 5, bring them out that we may have relations with them. We have translated a Hebrew word, which is called yediah, which means to know. And we have translated it 
to have relations or to have sex. Some would say that the prohibition here is not regarding homosexuality, but homosexual rape. In other words, you can't use this text to speak against homosexuality. It's really about rape. Well, there's some things we need to consider because I think there's problems with that. I think there's problems with the idea, the view that this prohibition here is only on homosexual rape. Because first of all, that word, nowhere in the Old Testament, that word yeh have a nuance of abuse or violence or to violate. It, it never has that. Secondly, the Old Testament uses unmistakable lang- language to relate rape incidences. In other words, there's other words that are used when it refers to rape. There's other uh, nuances used. It's never this word that's used. And yet there were some who would want to, to obviously um, promote other behavior is okay. Third, this interpretation forces one meaning on no in verse 5. And so if you interpret verse 5, simply rape, you go down to verse 8, and you have what Lot is saying, now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations. There's that word again, no. In other words, what he would be saying to them, which is why would he say it, is I have two daughters who've never been abused. Take them. That makes no contextual sense to what he's saying. And so the word no is simply sexual relations. Okay, that's what's being said here, homosexual relations. But the people of Sodom had long ago lost their ability to feel shame. And they shamelessly state outright what they wanted. They expend no effort to hide their intentions. They just outright say, this is what we want. This is what we're going to do. Now Lot knew in verse 6 through 8 he had to take action. We read about it. He pleads with this ravenous crowd And he knew his words would eventually fail and he wouldn't be able to keep the men back if they became violent. But he tried to reason with them. And as an alternative to raping the strangers, Lot proposes another option. Rather than to attempt to raise a moral conscience of the sodomites, he offers to satisfy their lust by handing over his two virgin daughters. He's willing to make his two daughters vulnerable for the sake of the crowd, but he's not willing to offer himself, which I find interesting. Now, to be honest, Lot's offer to turn his daughters over to sexually aroused mob makes me sick to my stomach. And if you're a dad in here right now, you're probably like me and you want to gag. I, I, don't, I don't know if, why or how a dad could do that. And as a father, I would use any necessary violence to protect my daughters from the horror that Lot is facing here. And Lot had just condemned, really, his daughters to this fate. There'd be no custom, no law that would convince me to sacrifice my girls for anyone. And yet Lot, bizarre, deranged proposal illustrates just how twisted his brain had become after living in a sewer for so many years. So many years he'd compromised his morality. And I don't know, I have trouble picking out what disgusts me more, the vileness of Sodom's citizens or the depraved hypocrisy of Lot. Both are disgusting, and yet we read about them. In verse 9, I'm sure all these years Lot's tried to fit in, but look what they say about him. 
They said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge. In other words, as hard as Lot tried to fit in, all along they thought he's just a foreigner. He doesn't belong here anyways. So much for trying to fit in. In verse 10 and 11, until now the angels had kept their identities hidden. We don't read much about them until this point. They didn't, they actually didn't need protection. And at this point, the story seems to pivot because the angels are no longer the potential victims. They become the aggressors. And with supernatural power, they blind the crowd. It's ironic that this mob who wants to know the visitors who had come to Lot's home, now they do not even know where the door to that house is. (laughs) They can't even find it. And it's interesting, the flow of this text, because this urgency and this sense of danger that we see, it seems to shift. We don't feel the tension, really, of the two travelers in danger. Now we feel a pressure of time. Look at verse 12 through 14. Then the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in this place. Bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy this place. And so we have Lot among his family, and we, we find the urgency of the voices of the travelers. It must have been jarring. Lot knew nothing of the destruction about to rain down on him. Angels knew their objective, but remember, they're not omniscient. So they, they weren't sure who they were to rescue or call out, and so he's just like, okay, who else you got here? Get them out of here. And so that's the exhortation. It's interesting to me Lot doesn't seem surprised. Nowhere do we see him go, oh my goodness, I didn't see this one coming. He's not surprised by this warning. He doesn't. Now, when he, I read this right here, sometimes it's helpful to look at it through different eyes. Whom else have you, your son-in-law? Your sons and daughters? Whomever you have in the city, bring them out. We read about these sons-in-law. Now think about it. As I read this through the eyes of a father of two young ladies, I have to wonder who Lot found as suitable husbands. You see, back then, marriages were arranged by the parents. And I couldn't help but ask, what sins and character flaws did Lot force himself to overlook to justify placing the hands of his two precious daughters into the hands of these men? What did he overlook? Obviously, when you're swimming in the sewer of moral compromise long enough, it runs deep. Whether he cared for his future son-in-laws or not, he, he calls to them to escape, to be rescued. In verse 14, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughter. He said, up, get out of the place for this lot, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he appeared to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. You see, there was nothing in Lot that they saw character-wise that caused them to believe him. Why would we believe him? There's nothing we have observed in Lot's life all these months or whatever, however long it's been, that would cause them to believe that they should even listen to him, that his word was even credible. They thought he was joking, pulling a fast one on him. He didn't take it seriously. And they saw nothing in Lot's character to suggest he had a kind of relationship with God that, that mattered, for he certainly didn't. Lot never took part so much in their sin, but he had never opposed them. He lived among them, 
with the values taught him by Abraham, he had cast aside. Instead of living authentically before God, he presented himself to this culture to become closely aligned with the evil. And he shrugged off their wickedness. And he blended into the scenery of the culture. Instead of representing God's goodness, he settled on being, I don't know, less evil than his peers. And there's a challenge. In high school, kids, let me talk to you because maybe this one challenges you the most. It's not righteous living to be only a little less evil than your peers. That's not righteous living. And sometimes we think, well, I don't swear as much as other people, so I must be okay. I mean, I don't look at pornography, well, as much as other people, or I don't do that as much as other people. And we think we're okay. We think we're, we're righteous, but no, we're not. God has a different standard. And Lot might have looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and said, I'm not doing those things. So I must be okay. But when you swim in the sewer long enough, you begin to rationalize anything. And you need to be aware when you flirt with immorality, your heart will be corrupted and it will eventually be broken. And look at it this way. If you put white gloves on and you go out and play in the mud, you'll return with muddy gloves, right? I mean, that's not a reach at all. But the mud never gets glovey. The gloves never have an impact on the mud. It doesn't get glovey. You'll never see glovey mud. And like a pair of gloves, your convictions can only become soiled when you tolerate immorality in your presence. You cannot make immorality less dirty by your compromise. You and I need to reject immoral behavior, not go swimming in water where immorality is permitted and encouraged as a lifestyle. Lot became soiled by Sodom's sin because he lacked convictions. And convictions are deeply, firmly rooted inner values that regard integrity, morality, ethics, and faith. They're a set of convictions that help us recognize good and evil and then prompts us to reject evil and to choose God's way. And to be honest, it takes guts to develop firmly rooted inner principles in the culture we live in. As a Christian who recognizes we're sinful, that we have selfish desires, you and I cannot look within ourselves to discern between right and wrong. We need help. And God knew that, and he gave us his word. Objective truth. True for all people in all places at all times. So we'd be able to discern between right and wrong. And this is where Lot failed. He didn't seek God's standard. He allowed the sin of the culture to diminish him as a man and as a father. Let me ask you something right up front. Do you have the guts to stand and live with conviction in the culture today? Do you have the guts to do that? Because it takes guts. You'll get laughed at. People will call you prudish, call you all kinds of things. Do you have the guts to stand? Because what really... Is it's going to take, and what it needed to take in Lot's life, we don't see it, is urgent action. We need to develop convictions, deeply rooted convictions based upon God's truth, because if you don't have them, you'll get pulled into the sewer of moral compromise. There's three things 
it's helpful for us to learn about convictions. They must be clearly established before God or they're going to be subtly twisted before others. Your convictions need to be clearly established before God or they'll be subtly twisted before other people. Convictions must be affirmed and modeled in the home or they're going to be compromised in the streets. Hear that, parents. Convictions must be affirmed and modeled in the home or they're going to be compromised in the streets more than likely. What are you modeling in your home? None of us model perfection, but can we model authenticity of a heart that's seeking God's ways but comes to repentance when we fail? Is that what we're modeling? Convictions also must mean everything to us personally or they're going to mean nothing to us when we're under pressure. Convictions must mean everything to us personally or they're going to mean nothing to us when we're under pressure. When we're in a situation where all those around say, no, let's do this. I mean, when you're under pressure, if convictions don't mean much to you personally, good luck. Because you're more than likely going to succumb when the pressure is turned on. As I said, this is a tragic passage. But just as tragic is the lives of those who, because they've lacked convictions, went swimming in the sewer. Don't become one of the casualties. I hope this passage really, really bothers you. I hope you look at it and say, that is ugly. I hope it's disturbing to you. Because if it's not, perhaps you're getting a little too comfortable. Maybe that pull towards the sewers a little strong and you're getting a little too close. And I pray that's not the case. I'd like to bow this morning, and for lack of a better phrase, do business with God. Young and old, this is for both young and old. Remember in Sodom, it was the young and old who were warped. With your head bowed this morning, I'd like to answer a question deep in your spirit. This morning, do you need to repent of behaviors that are pulling you towards the sewer? Do you need to ask God forgiveness for ways you've compromised morally, compromised God's ways? I want to allow you to do that right now in your heart before God. This morning, if it's your desire to live with conviction, if it's your desire to live with guts, seeking purity, seeking God's way, if that's your desire, tell that to the Lord. Cry out to Him for strength and for help to live a life of godly convictions. Maybe this morning you come and you're like, you don't understand my life. You have no idea what I've been doing in my life.
I don't. But I can tell you this and I can promise you this based upon God's word. If you come to Christ, he takes dirty and filthy lives and he makes them clean. And he does that for those who reach out of the murky waters of sin and cry out to him and say, save me. Wash me. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that this morning. To call upon the only one who can save you from a life of sin and from a life that would face the consequences of those sin. Only he can save you. And call out to him this morning. Lord, for each heart here, it would be really, really easy to walk out this morning and kind of write off what Genesis 19 is portrayed for us. That would be maybe the easy thing. But God, right now, in this place, I don't believe it's coincidence, each person's here. And you're speaking to them. Might nobody here harden their heart towards your voice? Might we respond to it? Might each heart cry out to you for forgiveness, for strength, for healing, whatever the case is. Please continue to work in our lives, God, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.